you guys turn with me to John chapter 11, verse 54, and we're going to run through the beginning of chapter 12. Man, it's such a beautiful piece of scripture. Thank you, Jesus. John 12, I'm sorry, John 11, starting in verse 54, going into chapter 12. And here's what it says. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found, found out where Jesus was should report it to, uh, so that they could be arrested, so that he could, they could arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a half liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. A keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a crowd, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how intimately you know us, God. Thank you for your word that is is alive It's called a a double-edged sword, God, that cuts through marrow and sinew and bone, Lord. It cuts to the deepest parts. God, would it do that today? I just pray in Jesus' name, God, that your, your word, the power of your word, and by your spirit would remove every barrier in Jesus' name between us and you today. That there would be no hesitation, God. There would be no interference for what you want to do in the hearts of your people today. And God, I just submit this to you. Who am I, Lord, to speak your word? But for your grace on me and the power in your spirit that you would move and do this, we, um, we ask you, Jesus, to be present with us today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when Noel and I were in college, Noel's my wife. When Noel and I were in college, uh, we went to a school down in Southern California, really close to Disneyland. And uh, we both had Disneyland passes, and we would go, like, fairly regularly to the park. And um, the thing about, like, when you have a pass like that, it, you just kind of use the park, like, very, like, flippantly. Like, we'd just go in and ride Space Mountain and go home. Um, or we'd, like, you know, do whatever. Like, we just wouldn't stay there very long. Um, and pretty soon, after a while, like, our experience with Disneyland became this. We would go at, like, 8 o'clock, uh, 8.30 and 9 o'clock at night like an hour before the park would close and we'd get a cup of coffee and we'd sit on a bench and we would just people watch. And by people watch, I mean people judge. <laughs> we would just make fun of people like, and laugh at them. And like, oh, does she wear that all day? Oh my gosh, I can't believe. Like, what are those two together? Can you believe like he would go out with her? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Like the pinnacle of like a grown man wearing a, a goofy hat. Like, you know, the goofy hat, like the hat where it's like Goofy's head and like his nose and like the ears hang to his knees. And I realize as I'm saying that, there's probably some of you have done this. So forgive me. Um, but I feel like you owe me an apology too. So that's just probably shouldn't happen. Um, and anyway, we would do this. This was our whole like thing of Disneyland is what it became. And then we moved, we moved north of LA and, and you know, we're over Disneyland and everything. And, um, and then we had Grace, our little baby girl, our firstborn. And I have this love-hate thing with Disney because since she's been born, Disney has pretty much like infiltrated my life in, in every way possible. I mean, it is, it's books and it's cartoons and it's dresses and it's, you know, cards and it's, you know, soundtracks and everything, like everything. And, and so we're kind of like introducing Grace to Disney and she's getting really into it and everything. And then when she's two years old, we go to Disneyland. The place that we had just cast off, been over, whatever, we go to Disneyland. And I want to tell you, like I, as we're driving into the park, I'm like excited for like to experience this with Grace. And uh, she's just her adorable little two-year-old self. Uh, and I see everything through her eyes. It's just the lights. And like there's, you know, Mickey, like a real life Mickey and like Chip and Dale, which I had a weird conflicts with. Uh, but, you know, Donald and like, oh, Prince, oh my gosh, it's Belle. It's really Belle. And like, you know, and then, like I'll have, I have this vivid vision of her like walking onto Main Street. And this is what Disney was made for. Like this little girl, this is what like it was created for. And I think this illustrates a little bit of like what John has been doing with us in this journey of introducing Jesus. Right? The whole first 11 chapters of John are called the, the books of signs. So we see like these miracles and these healings and these, like these signs of who Jesus is pointing to the greater reality of who he is. And then we come to this chapter in chapter 12, and this is a transition. Everything changes through the rest of the book of John. It's no longer about signs, 
Jesus' public ministry is done now. For the rest of the book of John, we're experiencing life with Jesus. What it is to be in life with Jesus, with God himself. And it starts in, in this place here. I'm so off of my notes. <laughs> um, okay, hold on. Give me just a second. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> Keep doing that. <laughs> so, so much of, um, of, of, of what John is showing us, it gives us these little glimpses. And it's like Gracie's seeing the real thing and experiencing it. Like, it's not this cartoon on TV. It's not this book that we're reading at bedtime. It's not the song in the car on the radio. This is like in living color, the real thing. And this is what John is taking us into now in this account with Mary and the family. And so it all starts at a banquet, right? And do you, do you get this theme? It, this is the way the book of John started in the wedding feast. And so much of what Jesus does and who he is happens around a dining table with wine and good friends. Jesus is cool, okay? Just like receive that. Jesus is cool, hashtag community, go with it. So let's set the stage. The way I want to kind of us to walk through this is the way John lays it out. I want to start with just the setting of what is happening in Jerusalem. What is the context? Go into this house with these uh, unique people with Jesus and then zero in on this incredible encounter that Mary has at the feet of Jesus. Okay, that's what we're going to do today. Um, So context, this is just days before Passover. Everyone is making their way to Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. Jerusalem's the capital city of the Jewish state. And that meant that everyone in that city and in the surrounding area would go into Jerusalem for this, like a pilgrimage to the holy city for this, um, this cherished tradition. It's like the hardly strictly bluegrass festival in San Francisco. Um, like everyone just like makes their way into it. But in the midst of this celebrating, in the midst of like this reverent time and celebration time, um, there is like tension, like serious, serious tension in the people. A tension is building because Jesus has just performed his greatest miracle yet. He has raised a dead man to life. Showstopper. Unprecedented. And while this should be, you would think, this incredible celebration of like, he's here. The one we've been talking about is here. It's not. There's tension. That there's so much conflict going out. There's, the word is out about what Jesus has done. And more and more people are believing and they're making their way toward Jesus. They're more interested in Jesus than ever. More people are believing than ever. And this is a threat to the religious community. Hear that. This is a threat because people are leaving them behind to follow Jesus. There is no greater threat to the religious order of things than the loss of power, of that power and that influence and that control. Because if that power is, if it's not found in Christ, if Christ is not at the center of it, then you are forced to control the people around you. You have to manipulate and influence them. You must have them under your control. You have to have all of your junk together 
And you have to work to maintain that power base. This is what the religious leaders are doing. They're so furious. Jesus is taking people out of the temple, away from them, away from this tradition and the way they've done things. And guys, I want to, just for a second, because we can like really come down on these religious leaders. Let's not forget, these are men who have committed their lives to memorizing the word of God. To, to living in a life of prayer. They have just like thrown themselves into this. And yet when the one who they have been reading and meditating and memorizing all about stands in front of them, they're blind. They can't see him. God have mercy on us. Okay. Like we easily fall into religious order. It's so easy to do. You can do it automatically. You don't have to think about it. You can follow your rituals. You can do your checklist. Think about your day-to-day kind of activity with God. Is it just a routine? Is it just like that checklist of things that you know you have to do? Has it been completely devoid, completely separated from the person of Christ? That's what's happened here. And it's a threat it is dissolving the power base. Now, I want to take that way of being and juxtapose it with John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist? At the very beginning of our book, he is the one who's preparing the way for Jesus. And he's been in the wilderness. And people go out of the city into the wilderness to find John the Baptist. Just to hear him preach and to be baptized. And his, his base is growing. There's so many people that are going to follow him. And then Jesus shows up. And it's a completely different reaction. Remember John the Baptist's words? He who came after me is greater than me because he was before me. I'm not fit to untie his, his sandals. He must be greater and I must become less. And this is directly the same concept John's disciples are saying, everyone's going over to Jesus' side of the river and getting baptized. Why are they leaving our side? He says, no, we must become greater. He becomes, or we must become less. He becomes greater. That's the way it's supposed to be. He knows it. He knows who Christ is. He sees him. What a difference. With Christ at the head, you take his lead. You allow him to determine the who and the what and the when, the where, the how. He wants to run his church, how he wants to run your life. He becomes the centerpiece. And when this is the case, you don't need slick marketing, right? You don't need bright, shiny new ideas and initiatives. You don't need cutting-edge social justice movements to attract people. You don't need program on top of program on top of program. You don't need that stuff. You allow Christ to lead it. This is humbling as a church leader. Let me tell you this. It's easy to make more programs. I know like people want, we want a singles ministry. We want like people want like all these different things. And you can just give those and more and people come and they're like satisfied. But man, that is not what this is about. God have mercy. Like Christ be the center. Christ lead your church. We say this and I know it gets cheesy sometimes, but we mean it to the heart that Christ is the senior pastor of this church. Like, oh my gosh, if you knew, Lomas and Tarek and myself, like on like a day-to-day basis, we're idiots. Like we don't, like, and they'll, I mean, they'll say amen somewhere. Dave's, Dave's not here, but 
Listen, Dave went to junior college in Bakersfield. Tarek, why are you laughing so hard? And he's brilliant. And I love him. Tarek spent time in federal prison. You have to hear that story one day. Like, no joke, really. Who am I? I'm, no, I'm a nobody. Like, we weren't trained for this. We weren't trained for this. It, no one would pick the three of us to do this. No one would pick it. We wouldn't pick it. <laughs> but when Christ is in it, oh my gosh, you guys, when Christ is in it, when he is leading, and it's a constant thing where we lay it down. Like I could feel, and this is what so much of my sabbatical was. It was like I'd been carrying and picking up and running and doing. <sighs> you lay it down. Jesus, what do you, what, what is, what's today? What is today? What will you have of me today? It's for us, for all of us, not just church leaders. This is us. May God always, Christ be the center and directing and leading this. That we wouldn't be threatened by Jesus. As silly as that sounds, we wouldn't be threatened by Jesus when he wants to do something different. Again, I have no idea where I am. Um, ah, so, so you don't need slick marketing. You don't need like these initiatives and, and movements and programs and everything. What you need is faith. You need this incredible abiding faith and lots of it in the person of who Jesus is. Life with God gets stripped down as it's meant to be. You and Jesus, us and Jesus, that's it. That's the formula, let him lead. All the other junk falls away. And what we see is that people want to be with Jesus, right? This is what the, the scripture is telling us. They're coming from everywhere. They just want to be with Jesus. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Right, if the, if the religious police are just weighing people down, with rules and with rituals, things that were actually meant, they're in scripture meant to be this connection with God, a remembrance of who he is, have lost all of that and they just have become this uh, demand on their life, completely devoid of relationship. These religious men are cold and they're calculated. They're isolated from those they're leading. They look down from these religious thrones and cast judgments on the church and on his people. This is what church leadership has become. Who wants that? And then Jesus comes and he walks with the people. He's just come and he walks with people and he allows them to be near him and to know him. And he touches the unclean. He touches that deformed, decaying body of a leper and makes it new and clean. And reordered. In his hands, he breaks bread and he breaks fish for 5,000 families out of a little boy's lunch pail. He, he breaks it and he hands it off to people. He cries with Mary in her sorrow. He weeps. And he calls Lazarus by name from the dead. This is an intimate savior. This is not a far off, distant, isolated, exclusive man. He's very much present with us. Who would you follow? Hold those two things up. Who would you follow? 
seems to be the where John pushes us, isn't it? Like, who, this is the sign. What do you say about that? This is what Jesus did. What do you think about that? What will you say to this if this is who Jesus is? It's the way he's moving us. And that, that question, who you follow, it becomes the greatest threat to the religious leaders. Because their leadership can't compete. <laughs> they can't compete with Jesus. Religious idolatry cannot compete with Jesus. Not then and not now. This has become such a threat uh, that the religious leaders have put out a public notice that anyone who sees Jesus or his followers is to turn him in. Let them know. They'll be arrested on the spot. But of course, they have more than arrest in mind. They are threatening to kill Jesus. They want him dead. That is how threatened they are by him. And not just Jesus now. They want to kill Lazarus, which is just silly. I mean, what's that strategic planning meeting? Okay. Lazarus raised from the dead. Let's find him and kill him. <laughs> Tom, I'm not sure that's like the right way to go about it. There's, there's got to be something. Um, anyway. And this is, so this is the setting. This is the context as we move into the house in Bethany, this little town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem. Controversy is just everywhere. But Jesus' loved ones are throwing him a party, a meal in his honor. And they show this unbelievable commitment to Christ. This incredible commitment to Jesus in the face of all of this controversy. The 12 disciples are there. Martha is there and Mary, Lazarus. And they all take this bold step of receiving Jesus in the home and being present with him. In, in the midst of this chaos and, and, and controversy. Remember, everyone at this dinner has become an enemy of the state. Just in their association with Jesus. They knew they would face persecution. So what compels them? What compels them to stay so close to Christ in this crazy time? Was it his miracles? Maybe Jesus would do a miracle if someone shows up to come and get us. Was it the thought that, that Jesus could overpower the religious leaders? Like he, you know, he dodged them, he'd outwitted them every step along the way so far. Maybe he'll just keep that up even if we go into Jerusalem. Maybe it's this concept of Jesus as the king and the Messiah, which for these guys, remember, we have to rem think of this in pre, pre-cross. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know how this is going to play out. Maybe this whole idea of Messiah was like this revolutionary thought. It was this, this revolutionary leader that's going to come and turn everything upside down. And isn't that what they'd seen Jesus do? Maybe that's, maybe that's their hope. We don't know exactly what gave these people this fierce loyalty and commitment to Christ. But what we do know, what John has been trying to show us, is that when people really knew Jesus... When they really spent time, when they, they knew him and they saw him, they experienced him. They want to be with him. They just want to be intimately close to him. And this is the foundation of their commitment. When you know who Jesus is, you want to be with him. When you know the person of Christ, when you know like his, his, his heart and, and his power and his authority and like all of these things... You just want to be with him when you know his love for you. 
You can't help but want to be with him. And throughout scripture, it says the people went to where Jesus was. He's on this side of the lake. No, he's on that side of the lake. No, now he's in this town. And people would just go to wherever Jesus was. And I can identify with this. When, when Noel and I moved to the Bay Area, it was 2010. And uh, one of the, we had sold our home from Southern California, moved up, uh, you know, brought our whole life up here to the Bay Area. We were living in Santa Clara. And uh, one of the like terrible things about moving is having to find a new church family. It's just like a terrible process. Um, and someone had told us, hey, there's this church in San Francisco that just got planted a few months ago. You should go check it out. And so, so we went. And I remember it was like April 2010. And we, we get to the Swedish American Hall and we go up the steps and uh, we see Tarek, of course, the mayor of reality. And uh, he's just shaking hands and kissing babies and like <laughs> loving on everyone. He's doing what he does. And, and we, we go into the sanctuary there and sit on these incredibly uncomfortable chairs. Um, and there's, I don't know, maybe 200, 250 people or something. Like it's, it's open, like seats, 350 or something. So there's open seats and we're there late. And, um, and I'm looking around at this hipster crowd and like I'm in my mid-30s. Like what are we doing here? And, and then the worship starts. And... And the teaching, and then the second set of worship. And you guys, by the end, Noel and I are weeping. Like the power of God in that place, in that moment, like what he was doing was just palpable in us. And we, we drove home like 45 minutes, an hour back to our house. And we're like, what was that? Oh my gosh. How, we need that. And, and then, of course, you know, my rational mind takes over and the next thing I'm like, ah, we can't be in church in San Francisco. We live an hour away. We got to, like, be involved in a church down here. And so then we go around, great churches, check them out for like a month. And they're like, well, let's, let's just go back one more time. Just see, maybe it's a fluke. We go back. <laughs> and just the same thing, just like God's presence and his power and everything. I know you guys can attest to this, like I know so many of you guys have experienced the same thing, just in what God's doing. And, and I remember driving away that second time and saying to Noel, we have to be where Jesus is. We have to be. So if we have to drive like a really long way, like people did that in the Bible. It says that everywhere. They walked long distances just to be wherever he was. And we sense God's doing something there in this time, this season. So let's just go be where Jesus is. And like, sometimes I regret those words because my whole life got turned upside down after that. But um, no, but it's true. It is, uh, that has been um, this thing we keep coming back to, like the presence, be where the presence of God is. And that's what these people are doing. These disciples, this family, they are just going to be wherever Jesus is, regardless of the threats around him. They show this incredible, incredible commitment. Um, Okay, I'm going to skip that. I'm running out of time. Um, I think the theme of this, though, is that um, when we talk about commitment, it gets to be a tricky thing. We're not into commitment. We have contracts for everything, right? Because no one's commit. Like we don't believe anyone's going to stay in it. Um, and God calls us to this commitment. Like in his, in his grace and his love, he, he draws us to himself. And when we get there, he says, I, it's not, like, I want all of who you are. 
it's not just this casual thing with me. I want to have all of your being, all of your messiness, all of your love, all of your hope. I want all of it to be with me, you and I. Thank you, Lord. Um, Maybe the most tangible example of that in this story is Mary and her alabaster jar. Um, it says this, this account in John 12 is mirrored with the account in Matthew 26 uh, with a few details different in the same. Matthew tells us that, that that jar that Mary brought was this alabaster jar. And here's the thing about the alabaster jar. It doesn't have a lid. I don't know who designed it. It doesn't have a lid. So it has to be broken open. And all of what's in there is out and there's no going back. And I, and I think this is a picture of what Christ is asking of us. Don't bring your jar to me and crack the lid and, and you know, give me a drop. No lid. I want you broken open. And all of who you are comes out and, and I'll receive that. And if you see this as the picture of Christ being prepared for his burial, he's taking all of that. It says the fragrance fills the room and it would linger there for weeks and will linger on Christ through his burial. Just imagine as Christ is carrying the cross up to Calvary, like that smell on his hair is lingering. Everything that we are, it gets broken open and on to Jesus, and he takes that to the cross. This is, I don't know any other way to put it. Like that's what God wants of us. It's a picture of our lives with Jesus, our life with God, fully committed. And finally, we, we zero in on, on Mary. They're having this party. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the grave. Everyone's celebrating it. Martha is cooking. That's what Martha does. It's her thing. Lazarus is laying at the table with everyone. I'm imagining telling incredible stories. And then Mary walks in. And in this moment, in this act, Mary seems to know something that everyone else is missing. The threat from Jerusalem is real, but Mary seems to know that Jesus' time is coming to an end. That she may not have another moment like this with him. She seems to see Jesus for who he is. Everything the religious leaders couldn't see in their blindness, Mary seems to be able to see clearly who Jesus is. Remember, people had said, are you a teacher? Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Mary sees Jesus for who he is. And when we see Jesus for who he really is, this act of worship that's about to happen makes total sense. It didn't make sense to the people there, though. When Mary begins uh, this extravagant act of worship, we need to just remember and realize that pretty much everything that Mary does here is completely inappropriate. Completely inappropriate. She has no place at the table. 
the men are eating at the table. She should be cooking or like serving the meal. Like that is the cultural thing that she should be doing. She doesn't have a place at the table. She lets her hair down, which is a very intimate thing to do in this culture. Women would only let their hair down for their husband. It was a a sign of intimacy. She takes out this very expensive bottle of perfume and she breaks it open, which Judah says, like, that's such a waste of money. She pours it on Jesus. Matthew says she, she pours it on his head. John says his feet, so literally from head to toe, Jesus is being covered. She's making a scene. She wipes the perfume with her hair at Jesus' feet, cleaning his feet, which was the job only held for like the lowest house slave, not for the woman of the house to clean dirty feet. Everything she's doing, this whole scene is like a social travesty. It is so inappropriate. But I want you to notice how Jesus handles this. So much different than than what everyone would have expected. Watch what Jesus does here. Jesus never rebukes Mary. He never corrects her. He never pats her on the head like, I know you're in good intentions, but you really shouldn't be doing this. None of that. In fact, there's actually no dialogue at all between Mary and Jesus. There's no words said. The only voice that's spoken in this intimate time of seeing who Jesus is, anointing him from his burial, breaking open everything that Mary had onto Jesus, the only voice that speaks in is the voice of the accuser. Judas, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? We could use that for the poor. And I want you to know this. We don't talk about this, I think, enough in the church. That when you make a commitment to follow Christ, when you put him at the center, when you lean in with all that you are into Jesus, you are not guaranteed a life of ease. You are not guaranteed wealth. You are not guaranteed health. You are not guaranteed comfort. What you're guaranteed is an advocate. Well, your guarantee is the advocate that will stand between you and the accuser. That's the only thing Mary gets in this. She receives is Jesus coming between her and the accuser. The voice of the accuser is silenced by Jesus in this passage and forevermore. The voice of the accuser is silenced. Would you write that down in your Bible? It sounds cheesy. Would you write that like on your heart? Would you get that tattooed somewhere? Like the voice of the accuser will always be silenced by Jesus. And so you can't anticipate in this life with God that you will be just hounded by the accuser. I'm moving my family for ministry purposes into this city, the five of us. I mean, it is just like a middle finger to the gates of hell. And like he's not, he's throwing it right back. It is not easy. It's not comfort. It's not like all of those things that sometimes get preached. Like when you come to Jesus, he makes everything good and happy and right. And that, he, he restores what is broken. That's what he does. And then he stands between you and the gates of hell. What that means is every day I have to come to Christ and say, I feel like crap today. 
I don't feel worthy of like giving a sermon today. I, I don't feel uh, enough. I don't like all these voices of the accuser. And he just steps in. And Jesus says literally to the accuser in this, be quiet. Leave her alone. That's what he says. And for all eternity, that is what he says on your behalf. Leave them alone. My son, my daughter, you leave them alone. And Mary's heart must have just been racing <laughs> through this whole thing. I mean, it's brave enough to just walk into the room. I mean, it's crazy, like, to let her hair down in this time, intimate moment. To break that jar, uh, crazy. I, all of these things, like, her heart's just racing. And right away, the, the accuser comes in. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing? And Jesus steps in. And what happens in this, this moment is Jesus holds this space for he and Mary. He just pushes everything else out. Every like cultural insensitivity, every uh, uh, um, accusation, every, he just pushes it out. And, and it's just Mary at his feet with Jesus. And he's going to hold that space for them. And like the thing I felt more than anything you guys coming into this Sunday is that Jesus wants that with you and me. If you would just come to him. Maybe your, your heart racing and fear and doubt and the voice of the accuser on your back, all these. If you would just come to him, he's going to hold a space for you with him. He will handle all of that. You can just be at his feet where you're meant to be. Of course, this comes at a sacrifice. And this is where I'll close. This comes at a sacrifice. Um, it says that this jar is, of, is worth so much Money. I want you to imagine this January that your employer called everyone into like the meeting room and said, uh, you guys, this year you will be paid in nard. Uh, so go back to your desk and you'll find your jar there and use it wisely. Um, just think of that because that is what like all of this year you're going to be paid by this one bottle of perfume. What is it to you? What is worth it to you to break that jar open? What is the thing? What is the thing that is worth breaking that open, knowing there's no turning back? Once it's out, it's out. Is it like that investment? Is it the house? Is it grad school? That thing just represents like this. Connection to our heart, our longings, our desires. That God says, like, are you willing to just break that thing open? What, what would that, that jar hold for you? Because the cost with Christ, the, the commitment to Christ does come with a cost. It does. But here's how Christ explains it. In Matthew 13, he gives this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had and brought it. And he bought that field. So there's a cost that comes with following Christ. There is this laying down of our life that's saying, you know, if we are going to actually commit to you being in the center, that means that, that I back off and you lead and all these things get laid down. 
Because you know better than I do. And what Christ says is, yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. I asked that of you. But here's what it's like. It's like you go to Texas. And you find this field that is just full of oil reserves. And it's going to cost you, you got to go sell everything that you have to buy this field. But once you do, it is this exponential life of blessing. That's what Christ is telling us. Blessing not in like Ferrari and like, okay, so that's where like the analogy breaks down. The oil Texas thing breaks down. (laughs) I'm not saying like God gives you an oil field. What I'm saying is that like this cost that is every, it feels like everything. You can imagine Mary like, ooh, okay, once I do this, it's, it's done. Like this is a costly thing. When you do, like what you receive back exponentially leads like to this joyous way of like giving your life to Christ. It's like this joy laid down. Yes, I would gladly lay my life down, Jesus, to be with you. That's what we see with Mary. So maybe just close your eyes. Um, I just got this sense this morning when I was praying for this that um, more than just talking about this, that God would um, like invite us into it. And so I want to, this might be weird for some of you, I went to a charismatic church, so we do everything, it's no big deal. Um, Just close your eyes and Holy Spirit, I pray you would just lead this time. God, have your way with us. Um, Just that word this morning, Lord, that you'll remove every barrier. Pray you do that right now of distraction, of doubt, of questioning, of fear, Lord God. Um, Lord Jesus, would you bring us into that house? God, would you give us just a sense of being right at your feet? And every voice of the accuser being silenced by you. God, you holding a a space, a holy, sacred space. Just with us. Don't you see yourself there at Jesus' feet? And he is protecting this time with you. He's holding that. Jesus, would you minister to us in this? Would we see your eyes, God? I pray for everyone present. God, would you remove any blinders from our eyes that don't see you for who you are? Would you just clear it out, Jesus? God, we see your face on us. Your eyes of love just drawn to us. Would we not be afraid to look in your face? And as you look at us, God, I just hear that that verse, Lord, for the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross. We are that joy. Reconciliation, God, restoring us to you. Is that joy?
and obedience to your Father and walking it out that all things might be made new. 